welcome every one of you who are watching this today as we continue into our second week of our study through Revelation. Now, we are only eight verses into the very first chapter, but I hope these eight verses have already inspired you about what is to come, not just about what is to come throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, but what is to come in our future. And what is that future that we are told about in these first eight verses? It's this, Jesus is coming back. He will come in the clouds and everybody will see him. Verse eight says, I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. In the opening words of Revelation, Jesus is coming back. And the secret, which really is no secret at all, is this, we win. We win because we have aligned ourselves with the victor, who is Jesus Christ. And because of that, there is not a day that goes by that we will ever be separated from our Heavenly Father. There is no hard thing that we will ever encounter that the Lord won't see us through. There is no opposition against us that is so strong that the Lord can't stop it. We are just right now in the opening words of Revelation. And I just want to help us all stay focused on this key truth that will overlay the entire book of Revelation. And it's this, we win. The devil is defeated. All that is wrong will one day be made right. And what is in store for those who have placed themselves on God's team is more glorious than what even John could capture right here in the book of Revelation. So John, as you might recall from our previous message, he is one of Jesus's original 12 disciples. And he was given a revelation from Jesus Christ. Well, we looked at that word last week. What is, what is meant by this revelation? Well, that word revelation just simply means an unveiling, to reveal, to make something that was previously not known, known. And so John receives this revelation and he's supposed to share it with the seven churches of Asia. And if you follow the progression, it's God's revelation. He gave it to Jesus. Jesus gave it to an angel. Angel gave it to John. John wrote it down and shares it with us. This revelation, this unveiling is about what is going to take place very soon. So we'll look with me, please, to Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. Let's keep going as John begins to unpack for us the details of how he became the recipient of this incredible revelation. He says this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. First of all, can I just point out the obvious after reading this? The obvious is this, this kind of stuff that John is experiencing, it doesn't happen every day. In fact, if you look back over John's life, this guy's seen a lot of things. He has experienced a lot of things. I mean, just think about all that he saw Jesus do and all the miracles when he walked with Jesus all those years before this. But this was different than anything that John had ever experienced before. This was no doubt a first for him, and there is no evidence that anything like this has ever happened to him or anyone else since. So John received this revelation while he was on the island of Patmos. 
Patmos back in John's day, well, that was an island that was commonly used by the Romans as a place where they banished all the troublemakers, all the criminals. John was not on Patmos because he's trying to establish a church. He didn't go there because he is going to preach the gospel and win everybody to Christ. No, no, no. The logical conclusion is that he has been exiled there. He has been banished to Patmos with a lot of other people because he follows Jesus Christ, plain and simple. He even alludes to this in verse nine. He's like, I'm on this island because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, I am here because of what I believe in. I am here because of who my trust is placed in. I am here because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And his exile, it kind of makes perfect sense when you mesh that idea with the rest of what he says in verse nine. So he's addressing the seven churches in the province of Asia. And what does he say there in verse nine? He says, he calls himself a brother and a companion in the suffering and kingdom. He's making this, this acknowledgement that is so important for us to understand as we, as we go through the book of Revelation. He's acknowledging that Christians, the church, is experiencing great suffering. When this revelation occurred, persecution and hardships was a present reality for the Christians of that day. John was not separated from this suffering. It's not like he's getting a free pass. This is no vacation on the island of Patmos. No, no, no. He is suffering right along with them. He has lost his freedom. And he is just building this common bridge saying, I am in this with you. This persecution, it was happening to John. It was happening to the Christians in these, in these churches. What they're experiencing is very real. It's, it's significant persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the posture of John. That is the acknowledgement when he's writing to them. I'm a brother and I'm a companion with you in all this suffering. So he's not removed from it all. No, no, no. He's right there arm in arm with the church. And he could very easily identify to those who would receive this letter that he's writing. And you know, when I think about that from this perspective, I think that the New Life Christian Church that we are all part of here today, we should be filled with a lot of people who are like John. People who can relate to what other people are going through in the church. People who can empathize with the hurts and pains of those in our church family. People who can say this to somebody else. I'm walking the same road as you. We are in this thing together and we will get through it together. Wouldn't that be, if, if, we, could, if we could have that here at New Life Christian Church, wouldn't that be a really special community of Christ followers? Uh, to have a like-minded friend who, who will go and do life with you, no matter how hard it may be. Don't we want somebody in our life like John? Hey, I'm your brother, and I'm a companion with you, and we are going through this together. I have no doubts that God is calling you. That's right, every single person who's watching today. I have no doubts that God is calling you to be a John-like person to someone else, a brother a sister in Christ, a companion in this world to walk through the hard things, the difficult things. Somebody say, I will suffer along with you. I know what you're going through. We're in this thing 
together. I, I think every church needs a whole bunch of people like John. And that's what makes this church a family. And in that same verse, what else does John acknowledge? He also talks about this, a patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. In other words, what we're going through requires some patience on our parts. And this patience is not for nothing. We are suffering right now. There's no allusion to that. But there is something coming in the future. So John's, in a sense, saying, we're going to stay the course. We're going to have this patient endurance. We're going to stay faithful to God because we know that in doing that, We are saying, you are in control, God. You will get us through this. And ultimately, we will prevail. And there is something on the other side of this suffering that is gonna be so magnificent. So before John drops this revelation from God to these seven churches, we have to have this general understanding. Christians of this day, they were suffering greatly. John is suffering greatly on the island of Patmos. These are difficult Messy times for Christians. And that is the context of the book of Revelation. Now, all of this persecution is happening under the watch of a Roman emperor by the name of Domitian. Domitian is not a good man at all. There's plenty of things we can read about him in history. History speaks of him as being a downright evil dictator emperor. In fact, he would kill people who disagreed with him. He would kill people who threatened his power. In fact, this guy was so demented, so insecure, that he made people refer to him as either master or God. Now just think about that. Think about the craziness that's got to go through somebody's mind that he would make people under the threat of death to refer to him as master or God. And if you didn't do it, he'd kill you or he would exile you. If you've seen the movie Gladiator, Think of the character that Joaquin Phoenix plays in the movie. He plays the role of a Roman emperor named Commodus. And in that movie, Commodus, he is crazy. He's insecure. He is twisted. He is paranoid. He is power hungry. And he is this bloodthirsty emperor. And in many respects, it's kind of like how the Roman emperor Domitian was like when he was ruling during the time of John and these first century Christians. Life for Christians was hard under Domitian's dictatorship. I'll tell you, I love digging through historical things. Uh, We know that the church was being persecuted heavily when John was writing this revelation. We know that Domitian was most likely the emperor who was doing the persecuting. But sadly, we don't have any historical documents. We have nothing that has survived the times that detail, you know, Domitian's uh, governmental rulings or his policy towards Christians. I, I wish we had some of those things so that we could look at them and go, yeah, this is exactly what he was ruling against the Christians. So we don't have that. But what we do have is we have plenty of historical documents from letters uh, from leaders and emperors and governors and people like that who came and followed Domitian's rule. They were leaders shortly after Domitian's reign came to an end, and they were very explicit, very clear on their feelings of Christians and what they would do to them and what kind of punishment should be doled out. So we do have a lot of historical record of how Christians were viewed right after Domitian. I'll tell you about one. There was some correspondence between uh, a Roman governor named Pliny and an emperor by the name of Trajan. And they have this correspondence that goes back and forth, and we have in writing these letters 
Sardis, how they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with these Christians. And they describe what Christians are like. And, it's, and if you've never read this, these exchanges between you know, these, these leaders uh, from a long time ago about Christians, it's a fascinating read. But at the conclusion of these letters, this is how these two leaders decided how they were going to deal with the Christians. They said, we're going to bring the Christians in to their local magistrates and we're going to give them an opportunity to recant their faith. In fact, they can prove their patriotism in three basic ways. They said, if Christians will offer a wine sacrifice and burn incense to the image of Caesar, if they will do that, then we will let them go free. Or if they do this, if they will denounce their faith in Jesus and they will say, Caesar is Lord, in their twisted mind, that's like the counterpart. Christians would say, Jesus is Lord. And then they would say, no, you Christian, you say that Caesar is Lord. And if you say Caesar is Lord, we'll let you go. Or they can just do this. They can repent of their faith in Christ. They can curse Christ. And if they will do that, then we will let them go. And as these two leaders are working out how they're gonna deal with Christians, there is this sickness that you start to read through their communications. And you begin to realize thousands and thousands of Christians died under guys just like this for their faith. If they refuse to pay homage to Caesar, they got the death penalty. That's the world that the Christians were living in when John is writing the book of Revelation. You know, interesting, if you go back to the movie Gladiator, I don't know if you know this or not, but there is a scene in the movie that ended up getting deleted from the final version of the movie that was released nationally and worldwide. There's this scene, in fact, if you go to YouTube and you can look up deleted scenes from movies, you can find this deleted scene very easily. The scene shows um, Maximus, Russell Crowe's character. He's walking in through the, through the bottom of the Colosseum for the first time. And he's, he's looking up out of a window, out into the Colosseum, and he gets a glimpse. And what is the first thing that he sees? He sees a group of Christians, men, women, and children. They are down on their knees and they are praying to God. It's really a powerful scene that I wish they'd have left in the movie. And, and Russell is watching this and he's getting a glimpse for the first time, this Colosseum and all that's happening there. And, and this lion begins to walk out towards this group. And the lion reaches out with its paw to strike one of the Christian children. And the scene cuts away with Russell Crowe, Maximus' character, turning away because he, he doesn't want to look at these Christian children being eaten by lions. And it was decided that that scene should be cut. Uh, the, the reason they said was they didn't like how it was shot. And they didn't like the line. In the, but I think the real reason what came out later is that the director just didn't want any Christian illusions. Even though it's a historical fact that Christians were fed to lions in the Roman Colosseums, he didn't want any illusions to Christianity in his movie. And so he cut it. What is key to understanding the book of Revelation is understanding the context by which it is written in. Life is extremely hard for Christians in John's day. These are the people that make up these seven churches that are gonna receive this revelation from John. 
So let's just keep going. This, this vision, this revelation that John received, it happened on a Sunday. It happened on the Lord's Day. Now, this is the time in history. Church has been going on long enough now for many years that the church has, has moved its day of worship to Sunday. So we know that this vision happened on a Sunday. It's, it's the Lord's Day. That's how they would have understood it. Um, a little side note here. As you know, John is on the island of Patmos against his wishes. Obviously, he'd much rather be back home in Ephesus with all his brothers and sisters in Christ, but here he is on Patmos and he is surrounded by bad dudes, really bad dudes. There is nothing positive about his circumstances here on Patmos. Yet, I get the impression, and I could be wrong about this, I'm kind of reading into it here, but I get the impression that he was worshiping that he was focused on God, he was worshiping when he gets caught up in, in the spirit. And if that's true, what an incredible testimony that John is giving to us here. How not even being exiled to an island just for prisoners and very bad people could stop him from worshiping the Lord. His circumstances were dire, but he still, on the Lord's day, he made it a priority to worship God. You know, I'll tell you something, prior to this coronavirus outbreak, how easy was it for us to take church for granted? Now just think about that. A lot of us are really appreciating the church on a whole new level because we can't be together. But before this all happened, how easy was it for us to take the church for granted? You know, to have that attitude sometimes, like, ah, you know what, it's not that big a deal if I miss church, you know, I've been really busy. I'm just gonna stay at home today. You know, I was out late the night before, had to work late. You know, it's, it's pretty easy to make excuses. I think of John's situation. He could have made a ton of excuses. But I like to believe that John was not gonna sacrifice his worship of his heavenly father on the Lord's day, regardless of the fact that he was all alone on Patmos away from his people. You know, when this COVID-19 outbreak is behind us and it is time for us to come back together and worship side by side in this room right here, whenever that day is, let me challenge you right now, church. Let me challenge you to have this attitude to never take the church for granted again. I'm challenging you to make a commitment before the Lord right now and tell him in your own words, Lord, my days of making excuses, they are over. My days of allowing things to take priority over worshiping you, Lord, and being with my church family, things that I've allowed to interfere with my worship and my relationship with you, those days are behind me. Lord, you are gonna be my focus now. And, and if that's on your heart right now, that nothing is gonna get in the way anymore of me worshiping the Lord. Nothing's gonna break, break my loyalty to God. Then publicly express that sentiment right now by hitting the like button or the heart button. Let the whole world know right now, hey, I'm with God. And there isn't anything that's gonna get in the way of that ever. And if that's you, let it be known to everybody watching this right now. It's your public testimony of your commitment to Jesus. So it was the Lord's day, it was a Sunday, and John gets caught up in the spirit. What does that mean exactly? Well, essentially, he's having a vision. That's being caught up in the spirit. He's having a vision. He hears a voice from behind him, and he describes that voice as sounding like a, a trumpet. If you can imagine, a loud trumpet blast. He's like, that's what I hear when I hear this voice. 
And this voice tells John to write down everything that he's about to hear and share it with the seven churches. So let's look at verse 12 and let's, let's, let's read about this moment that he has. So John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with the golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool and white as, white as snow. And his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its brilliance. That, my friends, is an extremely powerful and descriptive moment that John is having. What did John see exactly? And who is it exactly that he's looking at? Well, the short answer to that question is this. John is seeing a vision of the risen Christ. That's who he's seeing. And John's description of this risen Christ, he, he bombards us with scripture after scripture, promise after promise, prophecy after prophecy. Every description of this risen Lord that we read about here in these few verses are alluded to elsewhere in scripture. For example, let me just tell you, what does he first hear? He says, the voice sounded like a trumpet. That probably is a reference to Exodus chapter 19 when the Israelites were at the base of Mount Sinai and God was gonna be in their presence and the presence of God sounded like a trumpet blast. There are these allusions to Old Testament that many people in the first century would have made more natural connections than often, even more so than we would at times. John said, the man standing there that I saw was like a son of man. And this brings to mind uh, places like Daniel 7. You know, these callbacks, these allusions, these references to other parts of the Bible, they're sprinkled all throughout the book of Revelation. And these few verses about the risen Lord, they are loaded with them. If I were to take the time today to unpack all of that here, as well as every other time that happens in the book of Revelation, where we go back to the Old Testament and we pull out the depth and the richness of these callbacks or these allusions to the Old Testament, well, if we did that, this is going to start to feel like a never-ending sermon series. So here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. I'm gonna point out some of them to you as we go along, but I'm gonna trust that those of you who are really interested will take the time to unpack this further on your own. I'd be more than happy to help you do that as well. The point is this, and let's not miss the point. John is seeing a vision of the risen Christ. That is what he is looking at it, and all the description paints this powerful image of the risen Lord. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 17. John says, when I saw him, so when he sees this risen Lord, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now that's kind of a, that's a pretty powerful image, isn't it? Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. 
John responds to seeing Jesus just like every other person in the Bible when they are confronted with, with the risen Lord or an angelic being or something like that, they hit the ground. And that's what John did. He went face down, fell flat out before Jesus, and this is worship. It's like the lowest you can get in, in humility, face in the dirt in front of Jesus. That is John in this moment. John knew that he was in the presence of holiness. I, I don't think John fully was aware of everything that he was seeing here, but he knew he was in the presence of holiness, a holy God, and he went straight down in front of him. This will not be the last time that John will be bowing down before Jesus or some kind of uh, uh, other situation in the book of Revelation. There's this one time that we read about later in the book of Revelation that John actually bows down in front of an angel to worship the angel. And the angel's like, hey, what are you doing? Get up, you don't bow down to me. I'm, I'm a servant of God just like, just like you. I'm on the same team with, with all the brothers and sisters in Christ well, I'm on the same team of those who hold on to the testimony of Jesus, and I'm just like you. I'm here to worship God. So you get up off your feet, and you don't worship me. So Jesus, he's like, John, get up. Get on your feet. Don't be afraid. I wonder, I don't know for sure, but I, I wonder if by this point, this powerful image of the risen Lord becomes a little bit more personal when he touches John and tells him to get up. I wonder if there isn't even, and again, I'm pure guessing here. I wonder if there's not a little smile on Jesus' face. It's like, good to see you, old friend. Get up. He says something very powerful to John. I've got something for you to do. And I want you to do it in an atmosphere of great suffering for Christians of their faith. He says, John, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. That may not connect with you as strong as it would somebody in the first century, but it would connect in a very strong way to somebody who was suffering greatly looking to Jesus for any hope at all. Jesus, are you still there? Do you still care? And he says, John, look at me. I'm the living one. I was dead, but now look, I'm alive forever and ever. When he says, I was dead, this is a direct reference to what? His time on the cross. Jesus came, walked among the earth, and the people of earth killed him, and they killed him by nailing him on the cross, and he was dead for three days. He says, listen, I was dead. He's talking about the cross. And he says, John, but now look, I'm alive What's he talking about? He's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about I was in the tomb for three days, but look at me now, I am alive and I will be alive forever and ever. Can you imagine what that must have sounded like to the original readers of this revelation who were suffering greatly? No, my king is still alive. Jesus suffered and he's now the victor. And that means something to somebody who's being persecuted. Jesus said, I hold the keys to death and Hades. Kind of get the picture where, where, where Jesus is holding a big set of keys. It's like, I, listen, I hold the keys, John. Look at this. I, I was dead, but I'm alive. I'm not going anywhere. And I got keys. I got keys to death and Hades. In other words, Jesus has the power to unlock the, the, the gates of the grave and set people free from their sins forever. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Write all this down, John. And start explaining this to the people. 
So John begins to write, and Jesus is gonna help him with some of the illustrations because there's things that aren't already obvious and Jesus is gonna say, let me, let me help you understand what I'm talking about and what you're seeing here. Look at verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. I really like this part of Revelation. Jesus is like, you don't have to guess what I mean. This is what I mean. He says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You know, as you study through scriptures, light from a lampstand is often connected to your witness for Christ. Now think about this, follow me. A lampstand, a light, that's often you know, a reference to somebody's witness for Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said um, when, when he was alive on the earth? He says, let your light shine before men. In other words, you have something in you that's not supposed to be hidden. He goes, nobody lights a flame and puts a bowl over it. No, they don't do that. That doesn't make any sense. Something has been lit in you. You are now a witness. So you let that light shine to all who would see it. Let your light shine before mankind. Um, You're probably like me if you grew up in church learning and singing the song, This Little Light of Mine. How many of you sang that song growing up. You can click like right now. Click lighter heart and that will tell us, yep, I know that song. I, um, I sang that as a kid. I'm not gonna sing it for you here today, but you know how it goes, right? This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Jesus said to John that this vision that he has of these seven lampstands are these seven churches And by picturing these seven lampstands, that would have been an understanding for John and the church that they, these churches, these lampstands, these lights, they are the witnesses for Jesus. It's their job to let their light shine. The lampstand is the church. That's how John understood. That's what Jesus is saying. These seven churches, they are my witnesses. And he uses the number seven. And we talked about this last week just briefly. The number seven in apocalyptic literature, it just means whole, complete, full, perfect. We know that there were more than seven churches. You read through the book of Acts, you know there was a whole lot more than seven churches. So, you know, in a symbolic way, this number seven Yes, John is writing to seven specific churches, but the number seven taps us into the thinking that this is an all-inclusive revelation. This is to go to all the churches, all the Christians of that day and every day, all the way to the New Life Christian Church right here in Bella Vista, Arkansas. This revelation that John is writing down, it is a powerful message to the Christians of the first century, and it is still an equally powerful message to Christians in the 21st century. So when John first got a glimpse of this risen Christ, what did he notice? Well, he noticed that Jesus was doing what? He was standing among the seven lampstands. You can go back and look at that in verse 12. I kind of get this impression that there are these seven lampstands all over the place and Jesus is kind of sheltered within all of these lampstands. And if you can visualize the imagery of Jesus standing among these lampstands, that is a very powerful understanding and visual when you understand that the lampstands is the church and Jesus is standing with the church. That's the meaning of all of this. 
What was the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven? Do you remember in Matthew chapter 28, 20? He said, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus makes this promise that I am going to be with the church and I'm never gonna be separated from the church and I will be with you forever. And here John sees a vision of the risen Christ. It's a mighty, powerful image. And what's he doing? He is standing with the church. Just like he promised he would, he's standing with his faithful witnesses who are to let their light shine to the world. So he's side by side with his people. Not only that, in this imagery, he defeated death and Jesus is alive today. He's holding the keys, able to unlock the gates of the grave to deliver people to freedom from their sins and eternity with Jesus. Oh man, this is what John is seeing. This is a powerful visualization of the risen Lord. No wonder when John saw it, he went straight down on his face and he couldn't even look at it. He just worshiped what he was seeing. He worshiped the risen Christ. This is just a powerful, powerful thing. If you don't know this today, then I am proud that I get to be the one to tell you right now. Jesus is often portrayed in sculptures and paintings and variety of arts and movies and music as being some kind of wimpy and very timid person. But in reality, Christians today, we follow the Lord with our whole heart, the one who is mighty, the one who is powerful, the one that we see described here in the book of Revelation, which is a very different look than how Jesus is presented in so many other venues. I'm happy to be the one to tell you that this powerful, this mighty Jesus that John is seeing that when the enemies of Jesus came against him, spurred on by the devil, the devil who we will meet very shortly here, upcoming in Revelation, they came against him and they nailed him to a cross. They killed him. And this happened a little over 2,000 years ago. I'm happy to tell you, they put him in a tomb for three days. But on the third day, he rose to life. And what John sees here in the first chapter of Revelation is the resurrected Jesus the one who is still alive today, the one who is still mighty and still powerful today. This is the one, this picture that we're seeing here in Revelation 1, this is the image of who we will see coming in the clouds one day. And if his return happens, why all of us here, why all the believers here today watching are still alive, then we will be caught up with him in the clouds. But if his return happens after all of us are dead, then we will be joining him in the clouds as he comes. Either way, it's gonna be a powerful, powerful, incredible moment for the followers of Jesus Christ. And here is some really good news for you. You get to choose if you get to be with the Lord one day in the air or not. It's totally up to you. My prayer for everyone watching today is that you make the right choice Scripture simply speaks of salvation this way. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, we don't read the book of Revelation 
to predict the end of the world, but rather to have a revealing picture of the victorious Jesus who knows everything that there is to know about each and every one of us. He knows all of our pain. He knows all of our struggles. He knows every one of our failures. And this victorious Jesus, he has experienced every emotion, every feeling, every temptation that any of us have ever been through. This victorious Jesus is calling even you today. Come and follow me. I hold the keys to your future. And if you're willing to join me, if you're willing to repent of your sins and believe on me with all of your heart, what I have for you in the future is beyond anything that you can ever imagine. I think maybe some of us watching today need to be on our face before the risen Lord. I think some of us need to get down on our knees and we need to pray, say, God, I'm so sorry for my sins. I'm sorry for when I put myself in front of you. Lord, I'm sorry for all that I've done. And I accept you, Lord. For the rest of my days, I wanna be on the winning team and I wanna be with you. Can, can I pray for you right now? Dear gracious heavenly Father, I just thank you for this incredible description that we've been reading about the risen Christ. That Lord, it's mighty, you're mighty and powerful and now death could not hold you and you are victorious over it and the forces of evil have come against you but you have prevailed in today holding the keys to eternity. Oh, Lord, I pray that everybody watching today, if they have not accepted you as their Savior, Lord, they will reach out and say, Lord, I want you to unlock my future. I want to be in heaven forever. I want to be on the winning side of all of this. And I pray, Lord, right now in your way, through your spirit, you will just reach out to each and every person watching today and say, come follow me. I love you. I did this for you. And I want you to be in heaven with me forever. Lord, we just give you praise for all that you've done for us, that you loved us so much, that you would even endure what you went through on the cross for us. So Lord, we give you praise today and we thank you. And I pray, Lord, for all of those today who are watching who have decided that they've seen enough, they've heard enough, and they've decided that they're gonna follow you. Thank you, Father. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.